Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We've been hearing a lot about nationalism, and in particular, Christian nationalism. But if nationalism is the idol, what good thing was made an idol? You're listening to Modern Day Idols, Nationalism, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Two Bible passages this morning. Uh, One from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, and then from Paul's letter to the Philippians, Philippians 3, verses 15 through 21. Uh, We continue our Idols sermon series, and uh, I'm going to give you a long sermon alert. Uh, Today's idol is nationalism, which is a really, really tricky one, and so it's going to be a little longer than usual, so I I hope you are all well caffeinated or that you at least have an extra peppermint. But let's begin by reading Daniel 6. And this is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. I'm not going to read the whole story, but I'm going to read the run-up to Daniel's rest. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout his kingdom, with three administers, three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the other administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except for you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So, King Darius put the law into writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying, asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, 
order the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Of course, Daniel ends up being thrown into the lion's den anyway. All right, uh, that's Daniel. Let's go over now to Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 15 and reading through verse 21. Here's Paul talking about our true and ultimate citizenship. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently on that too, God will make it clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eye on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. So all along in this series, we've been saying that idols originate in something good. Idols are good things, God-created things, that are lifted too high or that are twisted by human sin. And so, for example, last week we talked about power, and power is a good thing, right? We were given power by God at creation. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's giving human beings power. But we sometimes twist that by taking power into our own hands and failing to glorify God. And that's when power becomes an idol. Today's idol is nationalism. So here's our first question. What good thing does nationalism take and twist or lift too high? What is the good thing that gets turned into an idol when you have nationalism? I think that good thing is patriotism. Patriotism is a good thing that gets twisted by nationalism. If you read your Bible, it's pretty clear that God intends for us human beings to be arranged into families of nations. Each of us with our own culture. We're not meant to be one homogenous group, undifferentiated. God intends us to be gathered into nations and each nation to be unique with its own culture. Where do I get that from in scripture? Acts 17. That was a text that I started this sermon series with. In Acts 17, you remember Paul goes to Athens and he ends up speaking to the philosophers at the Areopagus. And one of the things he says in his speech is this. From one man, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their lands. So God made the nations. God marked out the boundaries. God appointed their times. And not only that, God seems to enjoy their uniqueness and wants their uniqueness to endure. If you look at Revelation 7, 
John has this vision of all the people gathered before the throne. And all the people are now one in Christ at the end times, but there's still distinctions between them because John says, I saw people from every nation, tribe, and language. So they're all one in Christ, but some of their cultural distinctiveness you can still see. Revelation 21 goes even further than that. In Revelation 21, John sees this image of all the kings of the earth coming to the new Jerusalem, the holy city. And each of these kings are bringing their splendor to the city to lay them at the feet of the king. What does it mean that these kings of the nations are bringing their splendor? Well, Neil Plantinga and Rich Mao and many others have said, we should understand that, that each culture, each country, each king is bringing the best stuff of their nation and their culture to lay at the feet of the king. So the French bring their cooking and the Scotsmen come in their kilts and they bring their golf clubs, bless them. And the Canadians bring their hockey sticks, okay? All the good stuff of the culture, all the best things laid at the feet of the king. So the Bible tells us that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's over all nations, obviously. But one of the ways he intends to manage his world is through the appointment of nations. I've been reading a fair bit about patriotism this week. One article I read was by John Piper. And it was called, Should a Christian Be Patriotic? And Piper's answer was yes. And one of the places that Piper went to undergird his argument was to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis agrees with that. He thinks patriotism is a good thing. He writes about it in his book, The Four Loves, and he puts patriotism under the fourth of the four loves, which is storge, meaning affection. And Lewis would say, it's appropriate for you to have thankful affection for your country. It's the place where you're nourished. People have made sacrifices. They've built a community that allows you to thrive. We ought to be thankful for our nation. Here's a quote from Lewis. As the family offers us the first step beyond self-love, so love of country offers us the first step beyond family selfishness. Of course, patriotism of this kind is not in the least aggressive. It asks only to be left alone, and it becomes militant only to protect what it loves. Lewis actually compares healthy patriotism to healthy self-love, okay? If you love yourself, you have a good, natural, humble affection for yourself, you are better able to relate to the people around you. People who like themselves are more likable in the same way a nation which has a healthy patriotism relates better to its neighbors, both with its boundaries and its openness. It's appropriately bounded and appropriately open. Okay, so patriotism is good. Fly the flag, sing the national anthem, celebrate July 4th with abandon, have a party, honor those who have served your country, you owe them a debt of gratitude. Patriotism is a good thing, scripturally. So if that's the good, what happens when that good thing gets twisted into an idol? Patriotism becomes, patriotism becomes nationalism when instead of love of country, we have worship of country. Patriotism becomes nationalism when our national story 
is given an exaggerated sense of transcendence so that the things that happen in our politics and the work of our leaders becomes our great hope in this life. Patriotism becomes nationalism when politics gets sacralized. And we begin to talk about our politics like it's a holy war. The angels of light against the angels of darkness. Patriotism becomes nationalism when the power and purpose of religion is merged with the power and purpose of the state. These are meant to be distinct realms, right? Render unto God what is God's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, says Jesus. Patriotism becomes nationalism when the sacred purposes are merged with the political purposes. We see a, an example of that kind of nationalism in the story I read from Daniel today. King Darius is the leader of the most powerful nation on the earth. The Persians have conquered the world at that point. And he's their great king. And out of flattery, some of his underlings come to him and flatter him into erecting a statue of himself and say that no one should be able to pray to any other person or God except to Darius for 30 days. Think of what that means. All the deepest, most fervent hopes of the human beings in the kingdom all the deep soul needs, all the things that keep people up at night, all the deep anxieties of life, the people of Persia are being trained to put those hopes on Darius and the power of politics. Like Darius and the state are their only comfort in life and in death. Daniel is no rebel, okay? Daniel's not some revolutionary. Daniel is, a, is, is cooperative, right? He's working in the government. He's serving the country. He's doing an excellent job. He's giving his lifeblood for the sake of Persia. But he knows the proper distinction. He knows there's supposed to be this separation. So he refuses to obey the order and he does what he's always done. He goes home, looks through his window towards Jerusalem and prays to the true Lord because Darius belongs down here. That's nationalism. And if you read the book of Daniel, you can make a really good argument that the whole book of Daniel, one of the main themes is against nationalism. Because the kings of Babylon and the kings of Persia are constantly putting themselves up here and God is constantly knocking them down here. The same thing happened to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar raises this, this big statue and every time the Babylonian national anthem plays, everyone has to bow down to that statue. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar eventually? God humbles him, right? Gives him a fit of madness where he ends up eating grass until he acknowledges that God is the true king and he is down here. And in fact, if you read through Daniel, the end of chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, after every one of those chapters, you have an episode where the, 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 the state ruler ends up falling to his knees before God and saying, you're the one who knows, you're the true king, I'm down here. The New Testament also warns about the dangers of nationalism. Most of you probably know that the emperors at some point started to be viewed as divinities and even declared themselves to be divinities and demanded worship. People had to make sacrifices to the emperors. Some of you maybe know that in 40 AD, which is less than 10 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, 
the emperor Caligula declared himself a god and ordered that his image be placed in every single temple and religious place throughout the kingdom, including the temple in Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine how the Jews felt about having an image of Caligula in their temple. They went ballistic. And the conflict that started there is part of what precipitated the eventual sacking of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So this emperor worship and the pushing of the emperor as a god was very much in the air. Revelation 13 pushes against that kind of nationalism. Revelation 13 is the passage where we hear about the beast coming out of the sea. The beast out of the sea is Rome and its imperial power. John sees that the beast has conquered everything and everyone's worshiping the beast and everyone is saying, who is like the beast? Who can, who can conquer like the beast? So they're worshiping the beast. And the message of Revelation is don't be afraid of the beast because the lamb is the one on the throne and the lamb will destroy the beast. Remember the number of the beast. We all know it, 666. What does John say about the number of the beast? It's a human number. The empire, for all its glory, is down here. The lamb is on the throne, pushing against nationalism. Nationalism has persisted in sometimes Christian forms after the scripture canon closed. For example, I wonder if you've ever heard the story of Clovis, the first king of the Franks. Clovis was a pagan king who in 496 was baptized and became the first king of the Franks, which means, in terms of French culture, he was the descendant, or not the descendant, the ancestor of all the kings that came up afterwards, even all the way to Louis. And there's a legend told about Clovis around his baptism. 496, he's baptized by the bishop Remy, his Catholic bishop, and Clovis goes down into the water, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, comes out, and after the baptism, he's supposed to get the holy oil on him so he can be confirmed and he can start his reign as king. But when they come out of the water, they look around, there's no holy oil. Oh my goodness, where is the holy oil? What will we do? Well, just at that moment when they were ready to panic, a white dove, whiter than snow, so the legend goes, flow down from heaven with a vial in its mouth, and in that vial was oil straight from heaven. And Clovis, the first king of the Franks, was anointed with the holy oil straight from heaven. And since that day, that holy oil has been kept in a vial. And every king of France, when they were crowned, was anointed with the same oil. Can you see how that legend tends towards nationalism, right? The kings were not just human, they were, they were specially anointed of God, and you must not touch the Lord's anointed. And in fact, the story even kind of makes Clovis sound like Jesus, right? There's sort of parallels between their two baptisms. It's conflating the realms of the sacred and the realms of secular politics. Nationalism. One of the worst examples of nationalism in a Christian form is, of course, Nazi Germany where theologians with Nazi ideologies co-opted theology, co-opted scripture. The symbol of the German church became a cross with a swastika in the middle of it. 
The Bible was changed so that Jewish references were taken out. And some theologians even claim that Jesus was not a Jew. He was an Aryan. He was a blue-eyed savior, they said. Nationalism, right? Sacred things to serve political purposes. Which brings us up to our present day. Lately, there's been a lot of talk about Christian nationalism in our present context. What do we make of that? Is that something we need to worry about? I want to try to address that. But first, let me begin by saying some things that nationalism is not. These are things that are not nationalism. Believing that your country is unique and special is not nationalism. We said at the beginning, God appointed all the nations and made them unique and special. He thinks all nations are special before him. Believing that your Christian faith played a strong role in the founding of your country and that Judeo-Christian values are important in the history of your country is not nationalism. It's probably just a fact of history. Nationalism is not just a right-wing thing, right? Most of the accusations of nationalism right now, if you're paying attention, are directed to people on the right. But nationalism can be both on the right and on the left. Nazism, very clear right-wing example of nationalism. But you have a nationalism of the left, it's a secular nationalism, and you see that in places like the Soviet Union at the height of its powers or in present-day North Korea. What do you see in those countries? Images of the leaders, right? Venerated, held high, and people are taught to believe that their only hope, their only comfort is in the power of the state. Simply voting for Donald Trump is not nationalism. Sometimes that's the implication, and it's not fair. Speaking out for biblical morality in the public square Wanting biblical values to be enacted in your society is not nationalism. It's just Christian witness. Nationalism is when you start to believe that your nation's history and action and politics is central to God's purpose in this world. It's sacralized. And specifically, it's when you start to imagine your country having a sacred past, a sacred present, and a sacred future. You make your nation's past sacred when you have a founding myth that God did something special for your nation. So the Clovis myth with respect to the French, that is a nationalistic founding myth. And in our context, you get towards nationalism when people start to talk as if the Constitution is an inspired document in the same way that scripture is. Maybe that sounds crazy to you, but there are a lot of people, influential people, who talk and say that the Constitution is inspired, infallible, as scripture is infallible. That's nationalism. The Constitution is a great document, a monumental document, but it is not holy scripture. It is not inspired by God like scripture. That's nationalism. We make our nation's present sacred 
we sacralize the present when we talk about our leaders as if they are anointed by God for such a time as this. Like specially anointed, like prophets. Of course there is a sense in which every king and every leader is chosen by God. We are Calvinists. So God's providence controls and appoints all things. Like Romans 13, 1 Peter both talk about authorities being placed over us, right? By God. Of course we believe that. But that applies to all leaders. And when we start to talk as though this leader is an agent of darkness and evil and that leader is anointed and an agent of light, we're straying into nationalism. And finally, we create nationalism when we start to sacralize our nation's future. And that especially happens in the way people interpret the book of Revelation. They take the book of Revelation and they interpret it with today's political scene in mind. They imagine that the trumpets and all that stuff, that's referring to our politics right now and that our nation is at the center of that. And then they even take another step and start encouraging national leaders to make policy decisions based on that reading of Revelation. Put your country in the center of God's holy purposes in an inappropriate way. Or there's this. The other day I was watching TV and some earnest, good-hearted fellow was on there and he really wanted everybody to act for some particular political purpose. He was really earnest about this and he said, we've got to do this, people. If we don't do it, what will you say to George Washington when he meets you at the pearly gates? That's sacralizing your story of your nation and its future. When you combine all three, making the past, present, and future sacred, you have the idol of nationalism. Can I be honest with you? I found writing this sermon absolutely exhausting. I found it exhausting because it's not always so much fun to talk about idols and the bad things in this world, and this one in particular because I know it's so touchy. Um, it's, it's hard. There's a big part of me that would just like to get up here and talk to you about the kingdom and the king that Paul proclaims in Philippians 3, right? The better country of which we are citizens. The king of king and the lord of lords. The one whose throne is a cross, whose crown is made of thorns, and whose conquering moment was sacrificial sacrificial love poured out for all of us. There's a huge part of me that just wants to say, let's just forget about all the other stuff this morning and just look at that. Fall on our knees before it and let the grace of his cross refresh us. Sometimes I just want to rest in the cradle of God's grace on a Sunday morning and I'll bet you do too. But God has called me and us to discern the spirits of our times. So here I am, here we are doing our best. And I guess that brings us back to Daniel. In his room, praying, looking through his window towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, Daniel stepped away from all the stuff and all the mess in his head and just looked through his window and focused on his Lord. So he can remember where his help truly came from. As I thought about Daniel looking through his window and focusing on his Lord, 
I found myself led to a question, and it's a question I give to myself, and it's a question I give to you now. And the question is this. What window are you looking through? What window do you spend most of your time with, and maybe even more important than time, what window are you looking through that is shaping your imagination and your daily thoughts and your daily spirit? For me, I recognize that too often it's that little window I hold in my hand and sort of swing my finger over. Or it's that window I hang on my wall and control with a remote. And too often what I'm seeing through that window, what I'm focusing on through that window, what's getting into my heart and my imagination are all the political things and all the worries. I want to spend more time at Daniel's window. And I'll bet you do too. We're doing it right now, in this place. That's what we do here. We lift our eyes above the stuff, and we look and we see our king seated on his throne, the crucified Lord, in whom all things hold together, the one who is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, the one who will make all things new. I pray that this week, as you go out there in the middle of the fracas, that you will find your way to Daniel's window many, many times, that you will sit at the foot of Christ's cross, that you will be anointed by his amazing grace, and that you will find your peace. Amen. Lord, we are your children. And part of that is a promise, and part of that tells us the reality of our understanding. Lord, you know that as children right now, there are a lot of things that confuse us. Thank you that in the midst of all the confusion, there is this sure thing that we can look to, that we can hold on to, and that holds on to us, and that is the grace of your love poured out to us in Jesus Christ. So we fall again at the foot of your cross this morning, and we receive your grace, and we ask for your strength for another week. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.